What if your faith could become more than just a story? What if your faith could be as gentle as a dove and as wise as a serpent? What if your faith could become as bold as a lion? What if your faith could become lethal? My name is Blake Harris, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Michael Knight. And here on the Lethal Faith Podcast, we're here to give your faith some lethality. Welcome back, guys. We're going to continue on. We're talking about uh, young people and their involvement with uh, revivals, right? And we're really going to begin to probably uh, talk about some things uh, that most people will be more familiar with. Uh, one of them in particular is Charles Finney, right? And Charles Finney was known to ha- to have uh, the most people stay converted. I think it they, they say it was something more like 87% of all converts from Charles Finney stayed in the faith. Now, where'd you read that at? Uh, I actually uh, <laughs> read that in, in the autobiography by the, that Finney had wrote. See, I didn't know that. That's fascinating to me because Charles Finney was rooted and grounded in, in the teaching of doctrine. He has lots of books yes. about doctrine. Yep. No, I, I got this whole huge book about Charles Finney, and he, and he talks about how he would come back and he would revisit some of the churches uh, that he had preached at where he had seen converts, and he talks about how the majority of those would always stay in the faith. Right. Well, and what we're talking about is out of the 30 or 31 revivals, and it's a growing document uh, in, in America that documents the revivals that have taken place in the United States, Right now, 30 out of 31 were started by the effects of young people, adolescents. And uh, Blake is talking to us about Charles Finney. Tell us a little bit more about him. Yeah, Charles Finney, he uh, inadvertently, or inadvertently, I'm sorry, uh, through Oberlin College in in Ohio, where he was professor uh, and then president, right? Which So once again, we're talking about colleges, right? And young people where Charles Finney, right, helped spark a revival. Remember, the average age of the admission at Harvard about that time is about 14. Um, I still can't get over that. Yeah, it's crazy. Then you've got D.L. Moody. I have his autograph in the room next to us. Oh, yeah. D.L. Moody, 1858. A lot of people know about him, but he got his start uh, as a leader of a Sunday school class of boys with a Sunday school as a Sunday school teacher, and they all went to the girls, which I find very uh, funny, all went to the <laughs> girls, and they saw multiple salvations. A Sunday school teacher attired, uh, stirred his ministry towards adolescence because of his conversion at 17. D.L. Moody was converted at 17. Wow. Um, and he had met what was called the boy preacher in England called Henry Morehouse. And I want to stop and just talk about that just for a moment, guys. One, the again, the power of Sunday school we're going to get into in our next podcast or within the next two podcasts. But this idea that... that um, conversions at 17 you know you hear people Mm -hmm. say all the time blake that the average adolescent or average person except christ it used to be 16 um now it's 14.5 the last time i've seen any good data on it but where that comes from it comes from g stanley hall and william james that's Mm -hmm. who i was trying to think of william james and uh, his book on religious experiences and g stanley hall who termed 
coined the term adolescence. Mm-hmm. Both of these individuals studied adolescent religious experiences from the Second Great Awakening. And they found out, because what happened is this is before Darwinism. Mm-hmm. They found out that the average person gets saved at around 14.5 to 16 years of age, somewhere right in mm-hmm. there. And that religious conversion was uh, uh, a idea of adolescence. So they placed conversion at adolescence. And they said it's the most vulnerable time. This is before James Fowler in 1981 in the faith stages. Mm-hmm. This is before Charles Darwinism. Because what happened, early psychologists and psychiatrists and people involved in that kind of the discipline, uh, the development of the discipline of those fields, mm-hmm. um, really started honing in on, on religious psychology, religious uh, sociology, religious conversions of adolescence as a psychological phenomenon and then by the time you get to 1850, Darwinism makes fun of religion and yeah. you see a great um, exodus of psychologists and psychiatrists talking about the effects of religion on people, specifically adolescents. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we say that young men and women, the average, that the average person gets saved at 14.5 goes all the way back to a study based on the second great awakening and mm. rooted and grounded in people who had charismatic experiences. Wow. You know, I, I just thinking about my own religious conversion. Uh, I was 14, Right. you know, uh, so that, that's pretty cool. And even D.L. Moody uh, converted at 17. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which we, we kind of jump into at, at 1881, uh, February 2nd, to be for an exact date, uh, and where we talk about the Christian endeavor, right, which we kind of alluded to uh, in the last podcast, right? So it, it was a worldwide youth ministry association start started at uh, Williston, Congregation Church in Portland, Maine, by Francis E. Clark, started with to win youth to Christ, um, and this was the first national youth organization. I know this is your heart, and this is uh, this is everything you want right here. I've actually I'm just finishing a PhD in sociology of religion, specifically its effects on and effects on uh, uh, Pentecostal charismatic adolescents in North America, ages 12 to 28 years of age. And uh, there would be no youth ministry, and uh, there would be no Epworth leagues. There would be no Westminster leagues. There would be no youth ministry for the Presbyterians or the Congregational Holy or Holiness or the IPHC or the Church of God or the Baptists or the Methodists or um, uh, Lutherans. There would be no youth ministry on a denominational level had it not been for Dr. Francis E. Clark. He started what was called young people. And at that same time, they would use words like young people societies. And any merger or any development of denominational youth ministry is strictly founded upon the work of Dr. Francis E. Clark. And I can prove it, especially even Pentecostalism and in the Church of God, the place where I am ordained. And um, it uh, is... um, Fascinating because this guy won a hundred, added a hundred thousand people to his movement every month before radio or television. <laughs> it's just God because I got no idea how he did that. Well, they had a pledge card. They had actually a, a simple system, uh, a pledge card, and um, you can see where in the Church of God, A to B Harrison, 
used the same idea. Wow. She came out of the Presbyterian Church mocking the Presbyterian style of youth ministry. I think it's called the uh, Westminster or the Epworth Leagues. And then you've got the Young People Baptist Society. And I actually collect uh, old literature from these days. Oh, yeah. And I, I love stuff like this. And I've got a Francis E. Clark's newsletter in there. Mm-hmm. But what happened is that denominations became afraid of Dr. Francis E. Clark. Yeah. They were afraid that the Baptists, young people going to the Christian Endeavor meetings, the society meetings, the young people societies, or the uh, Methodists were afraid that if they went there, that they would lose control of the doctrine these kids were being taught. Mm. So they started their own Baptist Young People Societies. They started their own Epworthlies. Uh, they started their own Westminster Societies. They started their own societies. And what people don't realize is that the Church of God, which is the oldest Pentecostal denomination in the world, and uh, holiness movements um, that preceded the Pentecostal movement in the late 1800s, that Assemblies of God, uh, the IPHC, uh, any of these other new denominations mimicked what Francis E. Clark was doing and what the denominations were doing at their time mm. when they were trying to reach young people with the Pentecostal message. Now, you have to understand within that day of this revival, this Francis E. Clark, the way in which Fran- and Blake just asked a fascinating question. How in the world did he do that? No yeah. radio, no television, <laughs> no satellite, no YouTube. That's right. You know, I still don't think my 14-year-old realizes that the TV on the wall has channels. <laughs> I think he's clueless to that. It actually has channels and you can move them, you know, because he's always watching YouTube or he's always YouTube shorts or anyway, they don't watch TV. They, no, they, they watch don't. whatever, you know, whatever they well, soccer, you know, but anyway, so what had happened is before Francis E. Clark, Francis E. Clark came about the scene when there was an explosion of the Sunday school movement. Yeah. And he came on the scene when there was a s- explosion of youth literature. Now you got to realize, like our sons, you know, they're watching YouTube shorts oh, or, YouTube, or shorts on um, uh, Facebook, and we've got a lot of new stuff coming out at Never Before this year that are shorts like that. Oh, yeah. I'm in Jerusalem at uh, bedroom of Herod, or I'm in the pool of Shalom. Anyway, I'm really excited about that, but. They didn't have those things available to them. And so what a kid did is they would read. And a book meant something big time or a magazine for young people. i got several mm-hmm. on the walls yeah. back here. Uh, it meant something really big to them. And they're, to make a long story short, we'll get into this deeper in, in the next couple of podcasts. But what had happened was they created a textual community. Mm. And the way in which... Francis E. Clark exploded the Christian Endeavor Association was he created enormous publishing companies. Wow. And there was a textual community of young people throughout the whole world where he had hundreds of employees. I mean, there's pictures I've seen where there's hundreds of typewriters everywhere. And I never thought about translating that into other uh, other uh, languages, but there are pictures where there are thousands and thousands of people in Chicago and thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the streets of New York and all over the world uh, in the uh, parades or the pageantries or the meetings of the Christian Endeavor Association. Wow. And any youth pastor, any denominational youth ministry, anyone who volunteers as a 
a Sunday school uh, teacher. You owe an immense amount of respect and loyalty to Dr. Francis E. Clark of the Christian Endeavor Association. And if you can find it, Blake, I've got one in there. I actually bought all the original members when we reinstituted the Never Four Project, this book. And I think I drove up the cost. I think they're down now. <laughs> but I bought every antique book I could find of the history of the Christian Endeavor Association, the actual book from the 1800s. And the last time I checked, that book was $700. Woo! I think you can get it now in a paperback for $21, which is not the old copy. Right. And I've seen the other original copies for a couple hundred bucks now. But yeah. I would encourage you, if you can go on eBay or you can go um, um, Amazon, you're going to find the um, the copy of it. And it mm -hmm. looks nothing like the original. Uh, you can find the originals or antique bookstores. And I would pick up everything I could from Dr. Francis E. Clark because that man was ahead of his time. A big time. You know, he, he really gave an organizational structure to what was happening in the Sunday school movement. Absolutely. You know, which is... Man, incredible. Well, what was happening in youth ministry. Yeah. That's You made a good point. Sunday school oftentimes was was children who were working in the factories. Yeah. Uh, and then churches adopted it as evangelistic methods, like the, uh, um, the head of the Church of God, uh, A.J. Tomlinson. Mm -hmm. He taught Sunday school in the mountains of North Carolina. Um, they sold Bibles, which is part of that inheritance they received from the publishing boom of evangelicals, yeah. uh, which was all directed mainly towards the young and reaching them. But there really wasn't a ministry for what we would call today adolescence. Adolescence as a term wasn't defined until the early 1900s with G. Stanley Hall, and I think it might be 1903, mm -hmm. um, and uh, William James about the same time uh, that begin to term and make a, a, a point. And then, of course, by the time you get to the 40s and 50s, this concept of being an adolescent booms. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there really wasn't any outreach towards what they would call at that time young people. Yeah. Um, uh, young man, young woman. And uh, in my dissertation, I note the different phrases they would use to describe those kids. But a children, a child could be someone who was under, uh, who was 10 nine mm -hmm. and then they would use uh, other languages for really really young children just like the scripture does but Jesus, uh, um, uh, uh, Dr. Francis E. Clark I've got his picture up on the wall in here Dr. Francis E. Clark built a movement for a generation that was being ignored by the church mm, my gosh and he used literature to do it incredible right so man he really did do a lot didn't yeah, he he did <laughs> It's absolutely he incredible. Pins, and I've got pins. And next time you're down in my my Covenant Community Church office, remind me, or maybe they're here. I have pins because what he would do once you joined the movement, mm -hmm. if you were in New York or Philadelphia, there were pennants, mm -hmm. there were little uh, pins mm -hmm. that you would pin on someone. That would be a, uh, uh, and they had different divisions for middle school and high school older wow. kids, and you would get a pin. And that really meant something because what it was doing is it's forming identity. Yeah. It's forming identity and group dynamics to where a child will take on the value system of the group they belong to. So he was way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time. And matter of fact, Blake, we've lost so many of the things that he did that we need to go back in youth ministry. And I love youth ministry, but I have, I'm, I've got a burning in my heart at 55. 
I've been doing work with you for 38 years. Mm-hmm. I've got a burning in my heart to go back and, and establish training for youth ministry. And God yeah. has actually just given me the, uh, um, the idea of where to do this. When I stumbled on, while I was researching to start a juvenile justice program through a Western Kentucky Dream Center yeah. and their four project, I found someone who's already doing that in the area of juvenile justice. Well, you know, and, and you're so right about training uh, young people again to, to be ministers of the gospel because we can send them to college, and, right, and they know how to exegete the scriptures and, 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 all, and apply hermeneutics, but so few of them who come out, they don't even know how to be a, a pastor, right? Oh. You know, they're you're like, on my soapbox now. You know, they, they they can come out and they're like, oh, I've I can. never been. No one taught me in seminary or college. That's right. How to bury anybody? That's right. And there's there's no booklet that says, hey, this is kind of how you need to approach it. You need to make sure you use the proper tone. You need to make sure you know you do these things right. I mean, but no one teaches you things like that in college. They're like, all right, you can read Greek and Hebrew. Good luck. That makes it even more fascinating to move to this next one, Blake, because what spawned in a revival in America around 1886 of July was the student volunteer movement, Hmm. where students began to participate, where students began to preach the gospel uh, and be activated in the evangelism of the gospel. All right. You know, it it goes on to say, it talks about how it's the greatest revival of the century, uh, Mount Heron Conference yeah, Mount Heron Conference of College Students, right? Some 251 students from 89 colleges attended from the USA and Canada. To become evangelists and missionaries all over the world. Unbelievable. Absolutely. You know, of course, once again, we got Yale that comes up. Man. Again? Yale. That's right. In 1905. Yeah, it says nearly one-fourth of all students were part of the campus prayer meeting. Once again, we hear that word, prayer meeting, uh, and Bible studies. See, I find that fascinating with the research from Dr. Christian Smith, Blake. Uh-oh. Because Dr. Christian Smith says, as a sociology of religions in adolescence, that it takes five things to keep a kid, five things to lose a kid in their yep. faith. What causes deconstruction is the same five things that stops deconstruction. Yeah. Fervent parents, uh, a fort, uh, uh, other adults, adults who have your values, vision, and mission, modeling that in the lives of your kids regularly, mm-hmm. a baseball coach that lives right and loves God, a yep. Sunday school teacher. It's called hidden curriculum. Mm-hmm. But number three, a Bible study or a prayer yeah. meeting. It connects, uh, sociologically, it connects an adolescent to a deity mm-hmm. and intimately to a deity. That's why I, I said it Sunday at, at the first service or second service. You can you can bring your kid to church right. every week of your life and still have a kid that deconstructs their faith unless they taste and see that God is good, unless they experience God yeah. is good. And part of that experience also would be students getting involved uh, in a volunteer movement or like at Yale where nearly one-fourth of all the students were part of the campus prayer meeting and Bible studies, but that's exactly what we know today scientifically, Mm -hmm. that a prayer meeting or a Bible study is one of the things that seals long-term faith in a child. You know, as a a student, uh, teenager, you know, I I can remember me and some of my friends coming back to the church. I remember coming in here like 7 o'clock at night one time. I don't know why, but you guys gave me a key to the church when I was like 16. (laughs) Ron probably. Did that. <laughs> That's right. You know, uh, so 
So I would come in and I would turn the, we would turn the sound system on in the main sanctuary and there'd be like 10 of us guys in there just praying, right? For no other reason. We just came to pray. That was it, you know? And, and those guys who really stuck to that and who were there, man, we're still in the faith today, you know? That's a good point you've made. Very, very good point. Well, Blake, here's one of my favorite. Yep. The Azusa Street Mission. Matter of fact, my friend, Dr. Sean O'Neill, uh, has got a piece of property in our denomination, the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, and they have uh, stepped out on a limb to yep. do the right thing. Do you realize up until recently, in the last couple uh, decades, that there wasn't even a mile marker where the Azusa Street Revival took place? Mm. Now there's a plaque there and a, a marker. But right where the marker says, a uh, historical marker says Azusa Street Revival, that building right, I mean, within five feet of that mm-hmm. sign has been purchased by the church of God for the body of Christ. It's not a church of God thing. And I'm proud yep. of our denomination. They didn't make it about COG. Oh yeah. But they're the one flip, uh, uh, flipping the bill. Oh yeah. Uh, and it's not a small bill. There's, there's a new uh, prayer place. Yep. There is a new um, place for meetings. There are office spaces. There's a small um historical uh, museum that's going to be a part of that, mm-hmm. all at Azusa Street. But Azusa Street was started by a, an African-American man named William J. Seymour Blake, yep. who was blind in one eye. He mm-hmm. actually uh, would listen to the Bible college class in Topeka, Kansas, outside mm-hmm. of the room because of his skin color. He wasn't yep. allowed to be inside the room. Pentecostalism, however, in the beginning, mm-hmm. now, I get depressed when I talk about the 1920s in Pentecostalism, the 30s, <laughs> when it comes to race. But in the beginning was an ecumenical movement that people didn't care whether you were black or white. They actually made fun of the white people for worshiping with African Americans there. But, Blake, most people don't know that, number one, Azusa is the name of a 14, I think she's 14, 14-year-old girl who was known for prophetic utterances. Yep. Uh, and she was a Native American. Most people don't know that there was an uneducated young man in Russia who could not write or uh, could not write English um, and read or write, mm-hmm. and he prophesied to his Armenian family that a massacre was coming to his province yep. in Armenia, and they believe the prophecy of this boy, this teenager, yep. moves to Los Angeles. Of course, we know Anastasia and the massacre that took place. Yep. Um, there in that Russian province. Uh, So it was true. The prophecy was true. They moved there, and they were worshiping God and praising God in this street on Bonnie Bray. And William J. Seymour uh, walked by and heard them praising God. And that's how the Azusa Street started, through the prophecy of a teenage boy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Man, uh, it's always fascinating that it somehow it's connected to young people. Always. Always. Well, let's stop and, and talk a little bit more on Azusa Street. Absolutely. Uh, they actually have what's called the Azusa Street Papers, and we'll talk more about this at our next uh, podcast. But the Azusa Street Papers actually contained uh, all kinds of activity about kids receiving the baptism of yes. the Holy Spirit, yeah. about a young kid prophesying in uh, tongues in a language that was known to the man sitting at the Azusa Street Revival, fighting the Azusa Street Revival, 
He radically gets saved and then turns around and becomes a leader of the Azusa Street Revival because he said there's no way that a child That's right. knew my language and could speak my language to me like that child just did. That's impossible. It has to be God. Yep. And so you see where children, what I find is if you look at the Azusa Street picture, and it's actually an open domain. I uh, included it in a, a writing recently, and um, it's, it's open domain. In mm-hmm. other words, nobody owns the rights of that picture anymore. Mm-hmm. They've lost the, the rights for whatever reason. But there's a child sitting uh, there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Azusa Street was full of children. Children were leaders at Azusa Street. That's children right. were um, uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were evangelists at Azusa mm-hmm. Street. Young ladies were delivered from demonic oppression, and, and uh, revival took place uh, at Azusa Street amongst the young. They actually, and most people don't know this, and there's only a, a little bit of literature, but there's a lot of references, like probably dozens of references, that Azusa Street, when the revival was going on, had a tent for children. Oh. So they actually had this uh, this um, revival service for younger people outside the Azusa Street uh, mission. Incredible. It was in a tent. And when they would do camp meetings throughout California like they did, they would have the children tabernacle or the children tent. And as you see, one of the, Miss Crawford, who actually led the writings of the Azusa Street mm-hmm. paper as the editor, she had a falling out with William Seymour because she was in love with him. Oh, yeah. But uh, Charles Mason, the person who started the, um, the man of God that started the first, uh, the Church of God in Christ, told. William J. Seymour, at that time in 1906-07, you better not dare fall in love with a white woman because oh. they will lynch you, which would unfortunately probably have been true. Yeah. Um, and uh, she was in love with William J. Seymour. Yeah. But he ended up marrying his wife, Jeannie, and I've been to the graves in California, and um, she went to, I think it was Oregon, and started a whole new denomination where she, too, had a tabernacle for children, actually had a newspaper that was based in the early Pentecostal movement on reaching kids. So what they did in the early Pentecostal movement is they copied textual communities of Francis E. Clark and the Evangelical Publishing Company. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. So Pentecostalism was propagated throughout America in a textual community. When you look at early evangels or you look at the Assemblies of God paper, or you look at the IPHC papers, or you look at any Pentecostal denomination, you will see that in the early days, like the Pentecostal Church of God, that they actually had places in their magazines mm-hmm. for young people. And it was a textual community where they were developing a doctrine of charismatic practices amongst the young, teenagers, children. Wow. I need to read up on that some more. You know, so we then jump to uh, 1933, right? Uh, And it's called the Navigator Revival, right? So an organization called Serviceman's Bible Club used as a discipleship program for sailors. Great organization. Absolutely. In 1939, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship started. An outreach amongst the young started in Michigan University, uh, many participated in the charismatic movement there at the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Both of these organizations are good. And if you want some good academic books that are evangelical in the way that I understand it in a simple term, you believe Jesus is God, you believe the Bible is the word of God, you believe mm-hmm. Christ is coming back, 
that is very deep is you find you a good bookstore with lots of books from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Yeah, they're very good, right? I mean, they, they even pr- participate in the charismatic movement. Uh, a number of Yale, uh, Ivy League colleges in, in 1962 received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, of course, you go on uh, Youth for Christ, which was a, a huge movement, right? 1944 resulted from the urban area youth revivals. Civic concerns about juvenile delinquency believed to be an international revival uh, of youth. Uh, the goal, youth revival. And this is where Billy Graham got his start. Yep. But this is also where Charles Templeton got his start. Yep. Charles Templeton was bigger than Billy Graham during this time in the 30s and 40s. He preached to 50,000 people, um, uh, packed audiences. But because of the effects of Darwinism from the late 1800s, Charles Templeton had a crisis of faith yep. as an evangelical pastor, as a famous highly successful yes. evangelical pastor in America, mm-hmm. Billy Graham's best friend. If you see the movie they made about Billy Graham, he goes in to pray for someone at the end. That's Charles Templeton. He's yep. supposed to be the, uh, uh, um, you know, a, a model of, of that relationship. And uh, what's so sad is that Charles Templeton, his last book was called Farewell to God. Mm. And this is a message for everyone that's listening. Yeah. Don't let this generation make the same mistake of Charles Templeton. Yeah. Charles Templeton made the mistake and said that archaeology, which didn't start forming until the late 1800s, mm-hmm. okay, the late 19th century, uh, had not developed. And what was on people's mind from the French Enlightenment period, yeah. where there is no God, and what was on people's mind was we're uh, we've evolved from apes yeah and that there is no god and evolution has proven that there is no god really evolution if you believe in evolution demands there must be a creator go with the eyeball start with the bumblebee anywhere you want to go uh, start with the mm-hmm. rock stratifications underneath the earth and the cambrian fossil stratification so let's talk about mutations i could go all let's talk about racism we can go all day long oh yeah uh, however charles templeton had a crisis of faith and no longer believed the Bible was true. Yep. Had he lived today, Blake, he wouldn't have those. We're same. almost every week they're digging up something proving the Bible as historical literature. And what what happened in between the, the Darwinism, the development of Darwinism, there was mm-hmm. something called German higher, higher criticism. criticism. Yep. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I don't know if I am equipped to talk to you about it. I understand it a little bit, but basically, it, it stated that. Uh, all things were scientifically proven, right? And if you couldn't prove it scientifically or some sort form of archaeology, right, there was no way it could be true. You're warm. Right. Yes. But take that and move it to theology. Mm-hmm. And it was theologians. It was a classification of theologians, German higher critics, who said the Bible is not true. It is only a moral lesson. It's yes. allegorical. There is no Nebuchadnezzar. There is no, there isn't any, no, is no. There isn't any um, uh, Pontius Pilate. Mm-hmm. There wasn't, wasn't a Babylon. There was no Gates of Isitar. Uh, there was no um, uh, uh, Queen of Sheba. Mm-hmm. It's just characters made up for moral lessons. But today, Blake, yeah. do you know that where I'm going? No. You don't, right? Because I'm going to let you tell it. If you <laughs> I don't know where you're going. Today... Uh, archaeologists and people who train archaeologists at the Oriental Institute and William J. G- or William G- or Gluck, uh, 
the Jewish archaeologists or anyone else you'd like to go to, they say definitively, archaeology has made a full out of German higher criticism. Yeah. So wonder what would happen to Charles Templeton's faith that was rooted and grounded in Youth for Christ in the early days had he had the information we had today or even the information about cosmology yeah. or the information about archaeology. He didn't, so he judged the Bible based on the limited science he had during his time. Yeah, I think Billy Graham, he, he goes on and he, he, he talks about that, and he, he talks about how God spoke to him and said, if you would just trust me, right, in the things you don't know and the things you don't understand, right? And, and essentially, you know, he did, right? And look at the legacy that Billy Graham has left. I mean, it's in, absolutely incredible, Right, so uh, you go on to uh, 1947 and the healing revival, right? Where it talks about Oral Roberts was healed as a teen. Uh, uh, he saw a healing uh, of a little girl, right? So the healing revival is huge. I actually studied this in depth uh, when I went to college, and it was absolutely fascinating, right? So you get a lot of guys, uh, A. Allen, Jack Coe, William Branham, all these guys come out of this healing movement right, where they saw an explosion of divine healing. Um, and so I, I find this absolutely fascinating. Now, I've invited you to go with me, and we're, we're already booking our tickets, so you need to see Cindy today if you want to go with us. Okay. But at that Azusa Street dedication, one of the things we're going to do the day before is go back to Amy Simple McPherson's That's home. That's right. Home. I love Amy Simple but McPherson. But what I love, have you been there yet? Blake? No. All right, what I love is that when you go to Amy Simple McPherson, which was a woman in the mm -hmm. 1920s who built a $5 million building, paid cash for mm -hmm. it, Incredible. and actually fed uh, starving immigrants on the street uh, of families who are now world-famous actors. Yeah. I mean, very famous. But she uh, is known for her healing movement, part of being yep. in the healing movement. And we've got a, one of the original newspapers over here at the Near Four mm -hmm. office. But in that museum, which is her old home, there are thousands, it looks to be thousands, has to be thousands, of cards from doctors during the 1920s mm -hmm. and 30s that said, she's not faking this. Yep. Well, I know, you know, like when the Azusa Street revival was happening, one of the things they said was they did not want to exaggerate anything that was happening, right? Which is, uh, I find fascinating that they made that a point not to exaggerate anything that was happening. So if someone got healed uh, of a broken leg, well, that's all they said. Well, his, his broken leg was now healed, right? It wasn't, oh, he, he got healed of a broken leg and he ran around the building it was no god healed him of his broken leg you know and so the the healing revival to me is absolutely fascinating um, i really studied the effects of of what had happened to lots of the the preachers there um like how and like so what? so like um you take uh jack coe who, who was big right i mean absolutely incredible he at the end of his ministry right he he receives a, a word from from a prophet and, and and the prophet looks at him and says, you got two things in your life you need to take care of. Number one is your finances. Because what they would do is this, is that the anointing was still on their life. So they would go in and they would get someone who had some sort of infirmity and and, and uh, lay hands on them. They'd be divinely healed, right? Because God's grace was still upon them, right? Well, then they would immediately take up an offering, right? And so 
Jack Cole was doing this to, to gain more money for, for himself. Uh, so, so that was one of his issues. And then the other issue was Jack Cole was a very large man, very uh, overweight, right? And, and the man went to him and told him, he said, he said, you need to take care of these two things, right? And if you don't, God's going to take you out, basically is what he told him. And so Jack Cole, one of the last uh, places he goes uh, and ministers, he lays hands on, on a girl who had uh, polio, right? She doesn't get healed of polio. Weeks later, he dies of polio. I mean, really just some weird stuff happened there, right? And so I find those things really interesting and in how they kind of come into play. Uh, A.A. Allen, right, who was almost like the leader, so to speak, uh, of the, the healing uh, revival there. Uh, there was lots of accusations about him and, and alcoholism and things like that. And of course he goes on, he starts a church, right? And it doesn't do well, right? It kind of booms in the beginning and then just completely falls apart. His legacy is almost tarnished and just, just disastrous, right? Then you have William Branham, who was an incredible prophet. He actually looked you can look up some of his prophecies today, and he talks about how we would have an electric car, right, today. I mean, so some of these things are really incredible. William Branham, though, he got into, he believed that he was the uh, second Elijah, right? Uh, and he got into what they call serpent seed doctrine, which, yeah, some really weird stuff, right? And so he he had an incredible mass of followers. As a matter of fact, there's a church nearby here who actually follow William Branham to this day. So I didn't know that. I didn't it, know any of this. Yep. So in nineteen, I believe it's nineteen sixty three. William Branham died in a car wreck, um, and so they believe that his followers literally believe that he would be raised from the dead in three days. Right, because they thought he was like some sort of second incarnate of Christ or, or whatever. I mean, they truly believed it, and so they they literally waited around his grave for three days, thinking he was going to be raised from the dead. Right, he was just going to miraculously come up out of the ground, and of course, obviously, that didn't happen. But like his followers, till this day, they will they they don't ha really have a they have a pastor, so to speak, right? But what they do is they go to their church. And they don't listen to a sermon that the pastor preaches. They they listen to old sermons that William Branham had preached, right? And William Branham had an incredible experience as as a child, as an eight year old child. He says he, he he calls it an angel of the Lord, which he later goes on to say that it was Jesus Himself actually appeared to him while he was walking down the road. I believe it was eight years old, right? And kind of told him, okay, this is this is what I'm going to do in your life, blah, 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 right? And so, uh, man, the, the healing revival, I just, there's so many things that, that happened there and, and what really spawned, right? And, of course, the healing revival goes on and spawns the, the latter rain movement, right, which we'll, we're going to pick up on next week, right? Uh, but, man, I could talk about the healing revival for a long time. I don't know a lot about that from those aspects. I do know that the people who started, like you just mentioned, the mm -hmm. healing revival, were actually healed when they were adolescents yes. or children. That's right. And uh, they, it's it's just interesting how God used that. And then also it's very important, again, to realize that all revivals fought excesses. Go all the way back to Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Go all the way back to William mm -hmm. Tennant. Go back to, you know, Freeland Heisen. They all suffered great persecution. And I heard somebody say something to me one day, and uh, I've never forgot it. It's a true statement says, can you name me any great men or women of God from, the, from history? And just like Blake has rattled off six or seven. 
you know, just from the 40s and 50s. Um, we've rattled off dozens of great men and women of God, Phelan yep. Palmer, Amy Simple McPherson, uh, you know. Uh, Billy Graham. Billy uh, Graham. Uh, George Whitfield, Jonathan George Edwards. Whitfield, yeah. I mean, we can go on John and on. Wesley, yeah. you know, all of them. Um, and I, I said, yeah. So I rattled off cup. He said, now name me one name of their detractors, their enemies. Name me a name of their enemies. Ooh. And I literally had read it, but I couldn't remember to save my neck. And that person looked at me and said, no one's going to know the names of Ooh. the people who are your enemies when you stand for revival. And so these men and women we're talking about paid an enormous price. Yes. You, people don't like when they get awakened. No. They don't like to. I mean, I hate my alarm clock at 536 <laughs> in the morning. That's right. You know, uh, and I hit it hard. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They don't like to be, they don't like the sound of a trumpet. They don't mm -hmm. like a trumpeter. And when you've got people like um, Tennant and Freeland Heisen um, waking up, People in the church mm -hmm. who are taking communion but don't have a personal inner work with God. Yeah, uh, they don't have a strong soul or spirit like we we're talking about mm -hmm. uh, recently here at Covenant. Um, they get angry. Yes, and people like Freeland Heisen, uh, Blake, and I was reading before we started today. Uh, his church came after him and tried to get him defrocked. Oh yeah, and leaders in his church. He stood up to those four. I think it was four or five leaders and had them defrocked, and then other people went to. Amsterdam, where the, or at the this, um, College of Amsterdam, I think it was the name of it, mm -hmm. where his license came from in the Dutch Reformed Church, and they yeah. tried to get him uh, excommunicated. Yeah. And somehow he made it through. Same is true of William J. Seymour. Yeah. The same is true of all these other people. And so in revival, you have excesses you have to fight, yep. and then you have persecution you have to fight. And Jonathan Edwards, I'll close here and let you end it, Blake, yep. but Jonathan Edwards actually wrote a book, a good academic treaty to the response to the revival that God used him in some sorts to take place in on religious experiences. And if you haven't read that book, you need yeah. to read it. Yeah, that's true. That is a fascinating book. I've read, I've read some excerpts of that book, and it is absolutely incredible. Thanks, guys, for listening. And, man, we will pick right back up next time you hear us. Thanks, guys. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to the podcast today. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and as always, keep it lethal.